Imagine you're a young Korean woman in the 1930s, newly married and expecting. You've moved with your husband from your mother's boarding lodge in Korea to your brother and sister-in-law's house in Japan. Attempting to start a new life and a new family in the middle of two cultures fueled with racial tension, political unrest, extreme poverty, and social injustice. You soon discover your new family's unpaid debts, which are growing out of hand by the month. Deciding to take matters into your own hands, you sell the only valuable possession you own, a silver pocket watch, encased in gold, a gift from another man you once knew, the father of your unborn child. Well, hello, everyone. I am Ben the Barista. And I'm Hogan the Bookworm. And welcome to episode two, Pages of Pores. We are excited to talk about this story because this is actually a really heavy hitter. This is a good one. When did you first actually read this book? Because I remember talking about this story a while ago. I think I first read it in either 2019 or 2020 maybe which it's crazy that it's already been that long but it was at least a couple years ago that is crazy i remember you telling me about this story and i still remember like those conversations that we would have about it because the story itself is so it's so like tragic it's tragically written but it's beautifully written and characters are like so rich and yet so sad <laughs> Yeah. Brave. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it opened my eyes to a lot of, just a lot that I had never thought about or never been exposed to. So it's beautifully written, set in a really important time in history. And it's actually a generational tale. So it starts in early 1900s and goes through several decades in the 1900s uh just all together within one family uh and the book we're talking about by the way is pachinko by min jin lee we had mentioned it last week uh, at the end of our episode last week um just to kind of bring you guys in if anyone wanted to read it before we started talking about it yes and we're actually going to be doing something a little interesting this episode, something a little new that we're going to try out and see what you guys think. Because Pachinko is such a big book, it is like a 400-some-odd-page book, and it covers so much like family history as well as cultural history within it. Uh, the book itself is split into three parts, and so in today's episode... We're actually just going to be talking about part one and kind of delving into the story uh, gently and kind of bringing you guys along with us. And if you have read the book at this point or if you've started reading the book, then maybe it'll be a fun way for you to kind of join in on. Yeah, it'll be like you're reading along. Yeah. And if you haven't read the book yet and you still want to read the book or listen to the audiobook, uh, then maybe today we'll encourage you to do that. And then by our part two episode, maybe you could, you know, beforehand you could read a little bit of the book or read the whole book and part two. 
Yeah, yeah. And there's no pressure there if you don't want to read the book and you actually just enjoy listening to us talking about books and that's kind of your... Um, rather we do the work for you. Yeah. <laughs> if that's kind of your preferred outlet, that's totally fine. Uh, you definitely don't need to read the book, but this season we kind of thought it would be cool to try to give people the opportunity beforehand to know what book we'll be talking about before we actually do the episode. That way, if you want to join along, you totally can, and it could maybe be a little bit more fun for you and for us. And anyway, like, I totally recommend this book. Uh, Yeah, I read it a few years ago. It's been a few years since the first reading, and it really has stuck with me throughout all of that time. Just the characters and their journeys that they all go through individually. It's very much a family-themed story. And it's amazing, too, how how in-depth the author can get with each individual character. Even though you're not spending equal amounts of time, you still have this look into each individual's life. And she portrays them so well. I was really impressed with just the poeticness of the story Mm -hmm. because she introduces us to characters and we kind of get to see a snippet of their life and then more characters come in and old characters leave and Mm -hmm. you even after the old characters leave you're reading things and you're kind of you're still impressed by them and how their legacy lived on for new characters coming into the story and it's just a really beautiful, a beautiful story to tell. Yeah. Um, and that's one reason why we wanted to take extra time with this book, because it is a very important story. And um, like you said earlier, we did learn a lot about the cultural aspect of this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things that were going on during this time period in Korea and Japan, both. Uh, but Korea specifically, I I didn't know, you yeah. know, and that just speaks kind of just to the lack of education or like we had which is a bummer but it's nice that now we're able to delve into things and learn about things that we didn't even know we needed to learn about and it's cool that we can do it in ways that are so beautiful and are so touching like books like Pachinko. So before we delve fully into the story I know we had talked about wanting to just kind of talk about the author a little bit more. Um, yes. Because Pachinko was named by New York Times as one of the 10 best books of 2017 when it was published. And it was also the 2017 finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction. They even, and we just realized this too, we're going to have to try to get our hands on it. But uh, in 2018, it was actually made into an Apple TV series. Yeah, uh, which we we're gonna have to try to figure out how to get a hold of Apple, uh, so that way we can just watch Pachinko. I'm a little mad because when I got my new phone, it was like you get a three month trial of Apple TV, and I was like, I don't need that. And now I'm like, dang it, we should we should have yeah research. But we'll see if we can get a hold of the episodes, and maybe by next episode, or yeah, maybe by our next episode, we can talk about it. But uh, That's cool too, because then it's like if you want to read the book, read the book. If you want to listen to the audiobook, listen mm-hmm. to the audiobook. If you want to watch the show, watch the show. Yeah, we just found out there's a show. Free. Yeah, I definitely want to be able to watch that at some point. Yeah, because I love the stories. Yeah, more. yeah, and it's just evidenced by just the fact that it was 
named best, like one of the best books of its year. And the fact that it was a finalist for some really great awards, it's just, it's an amazing book. And that really speaks to how amazing the author is. And again, the author is Min Jin Lee, and she is a Korean American author and journalist, and she is currently based in Harlem, New York. Have you have you read any other books by then? Well, she has actually just two novels from what I could find. Have Pachinko 2017, and then she also has another novel called Free Food for Millionaires 2007 is when it was published. And I haven't uh, haven't heard of that book or read that book, so I'm not sure. Based on the title, I should have done more research on that. It, I don't know if it's fiction or if it's like a help book or what, but uh, she she has a pretty cool background. She was born in Seoul, South Korea, and her family came to the U.S. in the 70s when she was just like seven years old, and she grew up in Queens in New York City. Uh, she just has a, a really cool background because she actually studied law when she was, you know, younger, and she like attended Yale and everything um but she had because of health issues she actually couldn't really pursue law and so she actually just decided to focus on her writing instead because she had taken some a uh, nonfiction writing class when she was at Yale and so she just quit law and she decided to pursue her writing and I mean here she is now seriously because she she writes beautifully and she writes about some really important things yeah a really, a really important culture, really important time in history. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she's even lectured about writing literature and politics at several universities. So I'm sure there's all kinds of things that you could find on her if you wanted to look her up and actually like listen to her speak and things like that. Um, and actually it says here she's currently the writer in residence at Amherst College in Massachusetts. Which I need to tell that to my friend Chandler because she's currently like at Amherst. So um, that's awesome. She'd probably think that's pretty cool. So yeah, I wanted to highlight Min Jin Lee because she is just super talented and she is writing about some really good things. Uh, and she's just, she's awesome. So check them out. Go look at their other work. Yeah, and you totally should. Find them, do research, all that good stuff. Okay, so we have some notes taken throughout, like, for the whole book. And the fun thing is that I, like, reread the book specifically for this episode. And Ben is actually listening through the audiobook. Yes. Which is really cool. It's really cool to be doing that together and enjoying a story together. The audiobook is narrated by Allison Hirodo, by the way. So if anyone wants to listen to that i really appreciate her as an author or as a narrator uh because she brings a real authenticity to the story yeah it's yeah it's really beautiful she has a really soothing voice to listen to yeah let's just dive right in starting this book out i i remember the conversations that we had had in the past and you telling me about certain things of characters and by the way we will give spoilers so if you are like really wanting to read the book we always encourage you to go read the book and then come back and listen. If you don't really care, or if you want to read the book regardless of what we say, like, that's cool. You can totally listen. Yeah, awesome. But we will be talking about details of the story and the lives of the characters. 
So just a heads up. Mm -hmm, yeah. So the book starts out with a uh, young boy who is born with a deformity. And because of his deformity, he is not expected to actually be much of anything. He's not expected to be to really like ever be married or to ever have any sort of I don't know like place he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't actually have the common types of expectations put upon yeah. him by society at least and this boy is named Huni he is born to parents who in Korea who own a modest boarding house you know he he's brought up with a lot of love yeah and it's it's this really refreshing thing. Like, we don't even know his parents' names in the book, actually. Yep. We just know that they're loving parents. Sometimes that's not the case, especially in that time period for a lot of countries, you know? He is brought up in love. He is brought up as educated as he can be for, like, a kind of lower-class family at that time. And his parents try to give him what they can because they know that he likely won't marry probably no one will want to marry into their family line just for the fear that they might be like their children might be born with the things that Huni struggles with which he is born with uh, not only a cleft palate but with a club foot you know it's something that they don't even put that expectation on him that he will ever marry and it's nothing they worry about yeah and he's very like he's very quiet and he's very, he kind of keeps to himself, but he's also very, like, aware. He's aware of people around him. He's aware of other people who are in the same likeness as his family, who struggle, who are poor. Um, and that makes him very, like, compassionate. And he's a really, uh, he's a really sweet, tender soul, even if he is not what the culture would consider smart or something. And it's it's interesting too the cultural expectations on someone with what what they would consider a deformity that's ugly or mm -hmm. something that they would consider to be less than because in a in a culture that is so in, like in many areas so impoverished it's interesting that their outlook on would be that oh you're imperfect or oh you're you'll never be good enough or oh you'll never be whatever because regardless of that everyone's poor. Right. And regardless of the situation, like everyone's kind of in the same boat. And so it's it's an interesting look that mm -hmm. even within that those conditions they would look down on yeah. each other. There there are still some very strict expectations within whatever you just an interesting yeah. thing. Yeah. And you know, Huni definitely doesn't grow up hated or anything like that. He just kind of is kind of set apart. He is just allowed to be himself, which is a really beautiful thing for him because he was a really sweet person. People knew that not only was he a hard worker, but he had a tender heart. You know, partway through his life, I think that this was, he was already well into his 20s at this point. A matchmaker comes around the boarding house and sees this boy's a hard worker and this family is doing really well with this boarding house, which is really appealing for a matchmaker who's trying to match young couples together and find good homes for young girls who need to marry. And she looks at the situation and she's like, despite the fact that maybe not many would want to marry into his line because of genetics or whatever, she looks at the boarding house and sees how how well off people are doing and she's like you know I think I actually 
know of a young like a young girl from a very poor family who are very struggling who need their daughters to marry out to good homes that can take care of them and i see this family who needs family and i have a girl for them that i think that i think they could help and so that is kind of the uh, that's actually the reason why Huni does eventually marry uh, because his family at their boarding house are making enough money during these times that they can actually help this young girl. And in turn, by marrying this young girl and giving her food and giving her clothes like to warm her, they can send a few things over to her family to help them because that's just kind of how things were at this time like uh if you're marrying a young girl from you know whatever family it's the groom's uh family's responsibility to send them rice to send them any animals they might have to the to the girl's family at that time period for this girl's family specifically anything helped and so huni is married to this young girl named youngjin and they have like a they have a sweet life and a little life they have a few children well they 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 try to and they have a few children um over a course of time the only one like it's and i so young like they'll have yeah and golden it gets sick and it dies and then they'll have another one yeah it just yeah uh, yeah it's just really tragic and and not even specifically because of any genetic things that they may be born with, which some are born with cleft palates or, you know. And for Young Jin, she views her children as all perfect and she has this love for them. And so the fact that she has to say goodbye to so many of them over the course of how many years is heartbreaking to her. And so when, however many years down the line, she and Huni are actually able to birth a little girl because I think all the other children were boys actually and they none of them survived after however many years they were actually able to have a little girl together and the little girl survived and the little girl was born you know in whatever way she would have been born she would have been perfect to not only Huni but Yangjin and they have her, they end up naming her Sanja. And Sanja is like the light of their life. Yeah. For them, their intention was never to spoil. And Huni kind of had the same idea that his parents had, which his parents end up passing away a few years into like his and Yangjin's marriage. And so it's Huni and Yangjin who are manning the boarding house. And they have their little girl, Sanja. And to Huni, his whole life revolves around Sanja. He loves her so much. I, yeah. I love the description that he would make her dolls from corn cobs. And he would often forgo buying his own tobacco to buy her sweets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like that. It's a really good picture of like a really loving, caring father. Yeah. And uh, I, it, it was cool too because they end up running the the boarding house so they take over their family's boarding house and they run it huni has a really good reputation with boarders and other people in the area he's very like he's quiet but he's very like compassionate they're very giving um he's very fair and people really come to respect him and love him 
And and Sunja herself absolutely adores her father because it's not often that someone has such a a loving father and mother, and both of her parents dote on her. It's very uncharacteristic for that era because everyone is so desperate. Everyone is so like needy or poor or or sick, and so to have people that are actually caring and empathetic. It's a really unique thing and so people notice them and they they really admire them yeah for sure by the time that sanja is barely a teenager huni actually gets sick and passes away so then it is just yangjin and sanja and they run the boarding house sanja is very much marked by the loss of her father and and everyone else is affected because it's up to these these women to take over and run and they have to be resourceful with what they have and they're very resourceful all times are getting worse um people do not have money borders are increasing they're they're needing to house more people but they they cannot raise their prices because they know no one can afford to pay and so they become extremely resourceful in how they go about caring for their borders. They're able to take aspects of food and supplies and stretch them, and they become very savvy with how they buy things in the marketplace, and they, they still maintain a reputation for being like a good place to go, a safe place where people will know they can get a meal, people know they can find lodging. And they know that they're not going to be cheated because they're fair and they're very, like, they're very loving. And exactly. In that way, they're very yeah. caring for people. Very intentional. And Yongjin, she she runs this boarding house just flawlessly. And that reminded me, too. Uh, yeah, she's very savvy with going to the market, getting what they can with the little money that they have. And, you know, a great factor of that is because Huni, before he passed away... He taught not only his wife, but his daughter to do math, to do sums. Yes. Uh, which is a really big thing uh, because most usually women weren't educated at all. And even though Huni was brought up not not wealthy, even though his, his family's boarding house has always done well, they definitely weren't wealthy enough to like send him to like school yeah. schools. But he was at least learned enough that he could pass on some things to his wife and daughter, uh, one of those being sums. So that was a really valuable thing that he gave them. So even after he was gone, Yang Jin was able to run the boarding house just as well as he would have. So that it really it really spoke to anyone coming through. Like people would recommend this boarding house uh, because she kept it so well. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because even though they run the boarding house, they're still renting it. They don't own it. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a, and they mention a wealthy landlord who lives in a mansion who owns this boarding house that's kind of just, you know, they do the best they can with it. But it's it's very small. I think they mentioned at one point it's 500 square feet or something like that. And they're housing like six guests. Yeah. And they're all like sleeping in shifts. Yeah, and the so after after Huni's gone, it's the women that run the boarding house. Young Jin, her son or her daughter Sunja, and then they do hire on two maids to help as well with all the cleaning and all of the, I mean, because they they do their borders laundry and everything 
and cook them full meals and everything. So it's all these women running the house and all the women sleep in one room together at like the back of the kitchen. Uh, they don't even have like an actual, actual room to sleep in. They give that to the lodgers. And so they're just living a life of complete just work, work, work. That's all that Sanja has ever known too. And she doesn't really know what it's like to have free time. She definitely does not grow up with the luxury of being a child who can go out and play. Her memories of being a child are holding her father's hand and going to the market and buying fish and, you know, knowing how to talk with the merchants by the seaside and things like that. And so she very much is a hard worker even at a young age. And by the way, all of this info is just in the first chapter alone. Yeah, this is just chapter one. Yeah, we... and we, It's a heavy read, like, not in a bad way, but it's like, it's so much. There's so much going on. Yeah. You're introduced to so many characters, and regardless of how long or how little the characters last, each one is so rich. Exactly, because we actually don't know Hooney that long at all. No, not at all. Like, you, and, you don't have much time with him at mm-hmm. all, but... And, like, you, you know, it, the first chapter is, like, Huni's upbringing, Huni being married to Yangjin, them having trouble having children, them having Sanja, and then Huni passing away. The way it ends is, you know, Yangjin is now a young widow because she's only in her 30s at this point. After Huni passes away, the next day she rises from her mat and goes back to working at the boarding house. And that's just kind of how her life is. And that's the kind of life that Sanja is raised up in. You have to. You yep. you have to. They have to move on or die, basically. They can't afford to. Yeah, yeah. Time to grieve. Yeah. Or... Life has to be work for them. Your heart goes out to these characters and you love them. That's such a challenge for an author to create characters that you have so much sympathy for. Like you... If like when you become attached to a character like that, you have this connection with them where you have this longing to see them actually succeed. Mm-hmm. You want to see them win at something. You want to see them do well or earn something or become better. And that's a really, that's a challenge. And that's that's a really good author. Yeah, and capable of creating characters in such short a page space that you can still connect with. Yeah, and the author, she writes in such a simple way, and yet within her simple words, she does somehow bring heart into it. It's so interesting. She brings a lot of life into these characters. Yeah, she's not overly wordy, she's not overly descriptive, and yet you can see everything as it's happening. You can see the characters and you can see, I mean, you know, the markets as they're going through to buy things and you can really envision all of it. You can smell the fish. Yes. The lodgers. (laughs) On the lodgers. Yes, that's true. That is the intro to the story. Really, the story starts, starts with Sanja, who at this point is 16. Her father has been gone for a few years she and her mother have been running the boarding house like that's all they've known they've been doing well despite the depression and despite the 
really hard times to be able to buy even to even be able to buy rice or seaweed, you know. And Yangjin is just really doing well with the little money they have. Around the time the book starts, uh, Sanja reveals to her mother that she's been keeping a secret and she is pregnant by a man. Her mother doesn't know and Sanja does not tell her mother who it is. Uh, and her mother doesn't know what to do with this information because this is her only child. She had had some hope for prospects for Sanja, even if it might not have been big. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe she'll find someone that she can marry. Maybe she'll be able to. She knew it would already be hard anyway, just because they still do have that little bit of a cloud on them because of their, you know, genetics. Everyone knew what Huni struggled with. And so Yangjin had already known that Sanja might have a hard time finding someone, but she had hoped. She had hoped for her only daughter to have prospects. And so when Sanja, 16 years old, tells her that she's pregnant, Yangjin is just like, I don't know. This is, I don't know. Any chance that she had to find a husband or really to have a decent life is gone because who is going to look at a young woman who's unwed, who has a child or is pregnant and think and still think good of her they're going to assume oh yeah. going to think that she is you know I, as mentioned in the book several times people question her you know because she doesn't reveal who the person is mm -hmm. to them even though as the reader you know who it is because you get to see that unfold but um you know people think is she what did she do is she a whore is she this is she you know all these they think the worst of her yeah, which is just, when you know Sanja, I mean, anyone who even, there's just the confusion there of like, what did you do, you know? But for us, we learn what happened. We go back a few months with Sanja and we learn the story of how she met someone and who it was she met and how she came to be in this situation. So like a few months prior to her telling her mother this news, Sanja actually meets a man who is twice her age. Yeah. Is she 16 or 17? She's 16. And he's 34. Yeah. So even more than that. He comes around town at the at the markets, at the, you know, fish stalls. And he is unlike anyone she has ever seen. He's Korean, but he holds himself with a, such confidence and, and wealth, with apparent wealth. He's apparently a businessman. He's apparently very successful. He wears, like, this white Western-style suit. He doesn't wear, like, the dirty garb that all the fishermen in the area wear. He, like, he looks nice. He's, like, groomed. He wears, like, trilby hats. Is that what one of them was? Um, and so she immediately, her eye is caught because she's just unused to seeing that. Even so, she does not speak to him. She does not make any type of interest toward him because that's just that's just not what young girls do, you know, in that time period. He sees her and he is enamored with the perfect, beautiful 16-year-old girl in his mind that he sees and he wants her for himself. And there's a there's a scene in there where she is going to 
the market and she is buying food and stuff for the boarding lodge and she has her food she's on her way home and a group of boys a group of japanese boys mm -hmm. begin to taunt her and they come and they take her food and um and she can't really do anything about it and then they crowd around her and they start to taunt her and they start to threaten her threaten her and then they have the idea that maybe we could have some fun with her because this is the thing too the time period this is set in korea but it has been overtaken by a lot of japanese who look down on koreans and bully koreans and act as if koreans are lesser and so sunja has grown up with that like knowing don't don't cause trouble yeah. because as a young girl, specifically a young Korean girl, do not cause trouble with any Japanese boys. They will take what they want and they will look down on you the whole time. And they're speaking to her in Japanese. She can't understand them. Uh, she only speaks Korean and she doesn't know how to get herself out of this situation, which of course just feeds their fuel because they're calling her stupid, because she can't speak their language and all of these things. They decide we're going to have our way with you and we're going to take advantage of you. And so the oldest boy begins to go after her and start to touch her and all these things. Yeah. And suddenly someone steps in to rescue her and it's the wealthy man that she has noticed from the market. Mm -hmm. And he steps in, he saves her, he speaks to the boys in Japanese he tells them, uh, he convinces them that at any point in time, he could have any of them killed and he could have their bodies disposed of and no one would ever miss them because they're no better than any other person in this market. They're just as poor, regardless of your, you know, of mm -hmm. what your culture is. Like, I could have you disposed of and he scares the crap out of them. And he says all of this with a smile mm -hmm. so that Sanja doesn't know that he's threatening them. Yeah. He comes, he steps in and he just kind of like scares the crap out of them, but he does it in a way where she can't really tell what he's saying. And uh, he looks like he's happy or something. Kindly telling them yeah, off or whatever. But in reality, he's threatening their very lives. And the oldest boy like runs away crying. I think, I think one even wets himself. I think he does. Yeah. I think he like pees his pants or something. And that's how they meet. He, he rescues her. And from there, they form a friendship. And at first, you were kind of like, okay, well, that's cool. This guy is a good guy. Like, he's, you know, he stepped in to save her. He cares for her. Like, he notices her. I definitely had that hope the first time like, I ran it. This could be really cool. And at one point, you know, he start, he'll, he'll say, like, um, they'll meet up and they'll spend time together. And he's like, I just want someone to talk to. And so they go and they talk and they have... You know, he'll meet her at yeah. the uh, at the shore where she washes clothes. And he, he tells her, you can call me big brother. Yeah, he's like, you'll be my little sister. Then it becomes apparent yeah. oh, there's some ulterior motives here. And then you realize he's grooming her. And at one point, she's given the task to go and pick mushrooms. And um, they meet up to pick mushrooms. And he is bragging about, oh, I'm the best mushroom picker there is. And uh, so they move into the area where they are to pick mushrooms and one thing leads to another and they end up being intimate and it's uh and it's obvious that he has groomed her to the point where she is trusting and she is 
She thinks she wants it. She thinks she wants it, and she allows him to do what he wants. You know, for her, she's a young virgin girl. She's never experienced anything like that, and she thinks, oh, this is just what, this is what this is. And she, you know, she follows, she's in love with him. They continue this, they meet up, and they share moments together like that. She becomes enamored, and she just looks forward to any chance that they have to be together. And she thinks to herself, he's not mentioned marriage or anything like that, but surely that is what his intentions are, you know, because obviously he wants her too. Like, that's her that's her thought process there. And then one day, she goes to meet him at their spot where she washes clothes. They share an intimate moment, and he gives her a gift. Yes, because he, since he is like a, um, like a merchant. Yeah, uh, he travels a lot, and so like during this time period where they've been seeing each other, like he sometimes will leave and go to another country or another city, and then he'll come back and he'll tell her things about places she's never seen. So that's another factor into it. Like Sorry. that's another reason why it's just so easy for her to feel like this is so special and. Because he's like educating her about things she's never heard about, and and in this particular time he comes back, he's just been to London. He gives her a gift, like which sometimes he does, like he'll bring candies and sweets to her. Which of course she's hiding all of this from her mom, and she makes sure that if he gives her things like sweets or whatever, she throws the wrappers away outside of the house so Yang Jin won't see that she has someone giving her stuff. Well, this time, oh, by the way, the guy's name, we've not even mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, his name is Hansu. And so Hansu comes back from London at uh, this particular time, and he has a gift for her. He gives her a gold pocket watch. It's a very, very expensive gift to give her, the most expensive thing she's ever seen. And she has a gift for him, too, to tell him something that she has just found out. She has just found out that she hasn't been bleeding monthly and she is excited because she's like, I have something to give him like this part of our love together. I can give him a baby. And so she tells him that he that she's pregnant. He is actually really happy. Um, she does notice a little bit of a change in him yeah his demeanor changes a little bit yeah but he does show it kind of yeah it kind of like dawns on him like oh oh but but no he he's like okay we can kind of change this like for in his mind the better and he's yeah and he's like i will take care of you i will buy you a house you will no longer work in a boarding house yeah, he essentially tells her, I was already planning to do this anyway, to buy you a house and to set you and your mother up with a nicer place and to provide for you. And now with a baby, I especially will. But it becomes clear to Sanja, he's not talking about marriage. It even becomes more clear when he tells her, I can't marry you. I already have a wife and three children back in my hometown. And Sanja's world comes falling apart. In a moment. In one moment. Yeah. She is so hurt by that. It's It feels like betrayal. Mm -hmm. It feels like everything that she knows about him is a lie. 
She basically tells him, I never want to see you again. He gives her money. He gives her like a wad of cash and tells her, go out and buy things for the baby. And she, um, cause she, he may have given her the watch like slightly before this actually. Um, but he does give her like cash. And of course she's like, I can't believe you would ask me to be your mistress. And it's in this moment that Hansu sees that she is not just the sweet little demure little perfect in his mind what he is but he has said in his mind is what Sunja is because that's his whole thing like you're unlike other girls like you have working hands your hands aren't soft like you have calluses and you're a hard worker and you have strong shoulders and yet you're so innocent and whatever he would tell her all these things and think these things to himself he sees in this moment because Sanja gets upset and it's the first time she's ever got upset at him and she takes his money and she throws it on the ground she's like how dare you how dare you think you can just set me up as your mistress and still have a wife and children and I didn't know you know he is so confused he's like why would you turn that down why would you turn down this awesome situation that I'm trying like I will provide everything for you and in his mind this is a type of love or whatever because he just he's the type that like takes what he wants and he just makes the best of it and he's like he tries to like tell her if I wasn't already married I would marry you in a heartbeat you know and uh, it's just you and all the other mistresses you probably have around the other cities of the world yeah, he's definitely been with prostitutes and things and all kinds of other women. And he's just like solidified in his mind that Sanja's like unlike any other because she's she's young and Man, that's such a that's such a red flag grooming technique. When anytime you see an older man telling a younger woman, you're unlike any person I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's a moment where your heart just breaks along with Sanja's and she stands her ground. She tells him, I never want to see you again. I will not be that for you. I deserve more, essentially. And she thinks, in that moment, she thinks back to her father. And she feels this sadness and this shame. Because Huni brought her up to know her worth as a girl, which is so just unthinkable at that time. And here she has allowed herself to be duped by this man who will never love her in the way that she yearns for and she thinks on her father and she is sad because you know at least he's not here to see her shame is how she thinks and but at the same time she wishes he was there yeah yeah that she had someone because he would still love her no matter what and then it's like she has this deep deep longing to see her father again because she's like what do i do you know in the meantime there's another boarder who has come to their boarding lodge and uh he has come at in the night he's needed a place to stay it's what he tells young jen is his brother knew huni mm-hmm. and had talked with huni his brother told him if you're ever in this area find this boarding lodge mm-hmm. because they will take care of you this is a good place where you can you will know you can stay you can find a meal you can find a bed so he shows up looking for a place to stay 
it's obvious he's not well. Um, mm-hmm. And they they make a room for him. They make accommodations for him. We find out this character has kind of been sickly most of his life. He's had tuberculosis. While he's there, he is apparently sick. Mm-hmm. And he ends up staying with them and getting better. He, turns out, is a pastor. And he has noticed... Well, so he's there for a while. His name is Isak. He's there for a while because he does grow very sick when he first arrives and the thing that is just so amazing is that when Yangjin realizes that this new traveler is so sick she notices that he's sick like with the same thing that Huni passed away from and she decides to take care of him he when he realizes how sick he had no idea that he was sick and had tuberculosis again he would have never come to the boarding house. He would have never come in um, to expose anyone else. And he is like, I will leave. He's so weak, though. And he can't He can't even get up because he, like, collapses when he gets to their house. But Yangjin is like, oh, no, don't, don't worry. We will take care of you. And she, like, she gets him on a pallet and she drags him to the room where the women sleep and he can sleep there. And they take care of him, they care for him, and they bring him back from, I mean, what would have been the brink of death if he hadn't had someone caring for him. In his mind, because he is a young pastor, he is in his, I think, like early 20s. He's traveling from his hometown to meet up with his brother and to begin being involved in a church and stuff like that. She had pastored and church. His mindset is... I'm indebted to these women and they're they're wonder and not in a way of like auto obligatory anything like he views these people they're such good people as he's getting better starts being able to get up and go out and walk along the beach and like one of his first times out walking young jin goes with him because she's afraid that he'll go out by the water and like stumble on the rocks or whatever and he'll be too weak and no one will see him and so young jin who has never walked beside any other man in public besides her father or her husband, Huni. She decides to go walk with this young pastor to make sure that he is okay. Like, what kind of amazing person is she? In a time where someone could look and, like, even though he's younger than her, no one would, like, think that they were doing anything unseemly or whatever. But they're still... There's still the thought there that people would talk. Because everyone does. Everyone would talk. Everyone would gossip. Everyone. Yeah. And for her, like, that's such a big thing. She's never been out in public with another man at all. Just like she's never cared for any other man besides Huni when he was sick. But she sees this young pastor. She sees the goodness in him because he's such a sweet, good person. And she knows I'm okay. And so she goes out with him on the beach to make sure he can walk and get fresh air. And they're talking and without even realizing it or knowing why she's doing it, she shares with him their situation. When he, they're out walking and he asks her, is Sunjin okay? Yeah. She has a moment where she almost breaks down and she's like, I don't know what to do. And she tells him the situation. Mm-hmm. This is kind of an interesting part of the story for me because I thought it was unique that a character included in the story who is a Christian, who is a pastor, 
mm-hmm. um, the story kind of moves in a direction that I thought was interesting because hearing this news about Sanja and having compassion for her, he is moved to think, what can I do? Like, how can I help them? Through a little bit of time, he asks Youngjin, is it okay if I talk with her about this? Youngjin is thinking, well, maybe he'll provide some guidance or something for her. In the meantime, he gets the idea in his head, well, I know what I can give back to them. And he starts thinking of the story in the Bible of Hosea, the prophet, who, in God's direction, married a prostitute and took her as his own. Of course, in the story, in the biblical story of Hosea, there's different meanings to it, but the concept is um, Hosea marries a prostitute who is unfaithful to him and leaves and he goes and finds her and takes her back and she does it again and he keeps winning her back and it's significant of God's relationship to Israel and a people that turn their back on him and he comes back as a loving husband and takes them back and so in a way it's like he is deciding oh I'm going to be a good loving person and I'm going to provide a life for her In another way, it's a condescending look at her because it's like, oh, she's in the same in the same light as a prostitute, and I'll I'll be the good one to step in and save. And that's not like that's not blatantly what he's thinking. He doesn't have that thought outright, but it does show his. I mean, he's he is immature in a lot of ways. Immature Um, and not had much life experience in the way that people like Sunja and Young Jin and we have, and. They know who they are because of where they've been, what they've done, the things they've experienced. And through that, they've been good people. And for him, he's kind of had a lot of things handed to him. And he's been in seminary and he has not given good thought to his life outside of, you know, what he wants to do uh, aside from seminary or from clergy. And he's not given thought to his financial state. He's not given thought to the person he will be in 10, 20 years, where is he going to live? How is he going to provide? You know, he just expects, oh, I'll just, I'll just be a pastor somewhere and I'll make a salary. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't think about anything. And so for him to step in and think, oh, well, this young girl who obviously committed a sin or something, I will step in and I will rescue her. It's frustrating because it's like, okay, yes, that's a noble thing to want to help someone and be whatever. And yes, uh, okay, you're making a sacrifice, whatever. But at the same time, it's like, bro, you don't know her story. You have no idea what she's been through. You don't know what happened to her. And and there are, you know, there are moments in the story where he's like, well, maybe she was raped. Maybe it wasn't her fault. Mm-hmm. And then, and as if that's like, the only like okay. Yeah, there's this like self righteous attitude about it where it's like, oh, well, I will, I will do God's work. This is the Lord telling me I need to do this. And it's like he's not He's not a bad person. He's not an unlikable character either. Like he's a I, good person. Like he yeah. comes like he has a good intention. Yeah. His heart is in a decent place. His mind is not in the right place, but his heart is. Yeah. And he um when he begins to think these things, he travels to see another pastor and he tells him the situation. He's like, There's a there's a girl. Her family has done so much for me. And they've done this and they nursed me back to health and I was almost dead. Like, and I've been sickly all my life and they've helped me and I feel better than I've ever felt before. And, uh, the girl is pregnant and I want to 
I want to give back to her. I want to marry her and help her and give her a life. And the whole thing is, too, because like when when Young Jin is first talking with him and she's like just expressing her sadness and fear, I don't know what's going to happen to my daughter because now she has no prospects. No one will want to marry her. And the thing is, if she gives birth to a baby out of wedlock who doesn't have a father, she can't give that baby any name. Because in, you know, in that period of life and everything, like, there has to be a husband who can give his name to a child because the mother can't give her name to a child. And this also speaks to the age-old issue of if a man commits an indiscretion, no one judges him. Mm -hmm. If a woman doesn't she doesn't have to commit an indiscretion if something happens to her if she's abused or taken advantage of or something everyone judges her if, 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 as if it's her fault yeah she's the collateral and it doesn't matter if you have in the in this dilemma it doesn't matter if you have a good man who comes in thinking oh i will help her he's doing it from a motive of self-righteousness and he's still judging her oh she may be a whore but i'm a good man and i will i will be you know mm-hmm. and, there's no consideration for the individual. Like, you don't know what her story is. You don't know the situation, the circumstance. I mean, there is definitely compassion on Isaac Rooster. I, should, I don't think that he should be painted as only coming no, out no, because he was self-righteous. There's, but there's the underlying. There's, there's ignorant self-righteousness for him to think, oh, well, she needs a savior and I can be that. Yeah. And, and he goes and visits with a pastor and he tells the pastor the situation. And the pastor is not like, you know, he's not like against the idea, but he's like, are you really sure you want to do this? You know, because that's, that's your life. And, um, you know, you don't know this girl and you don't really know the situation for what, what happens. And, uh, he convinces the pastor that, oh, this is God's will. This is what God is telling me to do. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see. I think it's an interesting lesson in the dangers of emotional stimulation when it comes to religious belief because he thinks of this scenario. He sees an unwed mother. His first instinct is to immediately think of this situation in the Bible and he goes and reads the story and he reads it and reads it and reads it. And um, he's reading the book of Hosea and in doing that, he's building up in his mind the ideas of why she is in this situation and why he needs to be the person to rescue her. In a way, if you're not careful, the emotional aspect of that will put you in a place where you almost see yourself as God because you're saying, I will step in and rescue her. I will be the one. When I was reading that, it was interesting to think about, man, that's a good lesson in the dangers of religion solely through emotion and acting on emotion without actually really hearing maybe what God would be saying. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he he decides, that's what I want to do. That's how I'm going to give back to them. And he talks with Young Jin and he's like, could I talk to her? And she's like, well, I will tell her what you are proposing. He was like, no, I'd like to do it myself. And so he has the conversation with Sanja. He has, because he is young. I mean, when he tells Yang Jin his intentions, she's like, 
I have no idea why he's offering this, but if that's what he wants to do, because in her mind, she's like, without that, Sanja, I mean, would really have a bad life. Like, she would really have people treating her horribly and her child horribly. So she does see this as probably a miracle, not in those words, but... Well, it's not, it's not like he... He's not attracted to her. He doesn't have these feelings towards her. It's not until he, after he decides this, that he starts to think, well, she is a good person and she is actually attractive. Well, and like a lot of marriages at that time weren't based on that. And when uh, Young Jin is like, well, I'll just tell Sunja for you. And he's like, no, actually, I would like to ask her uh, because in his mind, he is starting to kind of think about what this look would look like. He's allowing himself to think of actually being married. And he realizes he would like someone who would want to be with him. And he wants to he wants to make sure of that with Sanja. So he's not stepping in as like, I'm just taking over and I'm amazing. There's definitely that underlying His motives are not genuine love. His motives are from a place of yeah, more emotionally driven. Yeah, to save your home. Yeah, he. But you know, he talks with Sunja, which she already does know because Youngjin does tell her beforehand. And Sunja, just kind of when her mom tells her that Isak wants to marry her, Sunja concludes in her mind, "Yeah, I will do it because she knows that's what's best for her." And so when Isak uh, approaches her and talks with her about it. She's very much like in agreement and he tells her, well, I would first like to make sure that you could love God yeah. if we get married. And Sanja thinks it over and her dad didn't believe in anything like that because that's just not the thing in the area. Yeah, that's just not the thing in the area to believe. But... Uh, Sanja, after her father's death, she really did feel like she could feel his presence. And so even if it's just believing in spiritual like presences alone, like spirits and loved ones who have passed on, she has felt before like she feels Huni's presence and she doesn't feel like he's gone, you know. And so she thinks to herself, I, I wouldn't be opposed to believing there's a God, you know, or whatever. And so she tells him, yes, I think I could. And, you know, kind of in part to please him and in part too, because in her mind, she's like, I mean, maybe, you know. And then Isaac's next question is, do you think you could come to love me? And she thinks it over and because he is so kind and so different from Hansu. Yeah. You know, she kind of thinks of how she needs to put Hansu out of her mind. And she needs to go forward with what is good for not only herself, but for her child. And she says, yes, I, I think I can come to love you. So that just starts her new period of life because she's just thinking this is what's best for me, yeah. you know. And what other options? Yeah, exactly. Like, what other options would she have? I mean not many she definitely wouldn't likely wouldn't have anyone else offering something like this to her um 
you know, even so let's think of the hypothetical. If she hadn't said yes to Isak and she had just continued on just being at the boarding house, she would have quickly, people would have realized she was pregnant. Rumors would have circulated. Likely it would have affected the business of their boarding house. And it would have not only affected her, but her mother. I definitely won't say that there wouldn't have been someone who came along and maybe fell in love with her and wanted to just marry her for her. Uh, Because there's always that possibility. But in their minds, that's never, that's never anything. That's, well, that's never, that's never like even an option in like a woman's mind at that time. Like, someone will come along and love me. Like, it's really sad that that's never even a prospect um, or a possibility. And it's like they have to look at, well, which one do I need to choose? Which is the better of the, you know, which is the better situation? And they're not really any, none of them are good situations, but at least I can choose the better of the two, you know? She marries a man she doesn't know, which is common for the time, but at least for her, and this is too like kind of which they comfort them, like the mother comforts herself and her daughter over, and even the maids they work with, the maids are so elated for her. They're like, at least you now have a nice husband. That's their whole thing is now you have a nice husband. Like they think for the maids, especially because they don't have any hope of marrying probably someone nice. And they look at Sanja's situation once they hear of it, and they're like, wow, I wish I could find a nice young pastor or a nice man who would look at me the way the pastor looks at you, because he is very kind. He cleans up after himself, and he brings his, yeah. It was funny. They're like, he's not like any other man. He, like, folds his blankets when he's done sleeping, mm-hmm. and he, like, washes his own dish yeah. after meals. <laughs> There's apparently a pretty low... <laughs> low standards. <laughs> but that's just so sad, too. We laugh about it, but, I mean, that is the truth. It's like... It's the the expectation, too, is, like, the women, their their whole life was servanthood in that sense. They were like, we will take care of the men. And that's just, speaking on Isak, like, at one point, he is having like dinner with all of the other lodgers, which the other lodgers, there's four of them and three of them are like fishermen brothers and they're very crass and loud and and funny and and whatever, kind of thoughtless in how they speak. And they're all sitting around and of course all the men lodgers eat together and the women who run the house never eat with them. They just, they make all the food. They serve them. They serve them however much they want. Yeah, even though they don't have that much even though they're having to scrimp and save to be able to make any type of good meal, and Yongjin does amazing at that. And the men who know they can't pay for their boarding because they're poor still have the audacity to ask for six. Seriously, there's one guy who asks for thirds sometimes, and they're not even thinking. It goes straight over their heads that they're even asking for anything that might be kind of hard on the women. Well, there's one meal, and I know I'm backtracking a bit, but I, I do want to kind of touch on Isak is definitely influenced by his upbringing and definitely making decisions based on his religious yes. He's also a kind person. I want to say that, too. I don't want people to think, oh, a villain. Like, But there's like a moment where he's eating with the other men 
he comes in a little bit later. The other men have already eaten. I think it was after Isak talked with the pastor. And so he came in a little later. And the women serve him food too. And all the other men are still sitting around. Isak is like, thank you. I mean, I I don't need to eat. Like, have you eaten or whatever? And the women are like, it's fine. No, we have food for you. And um, there, there's something said at one point because the other men are being crass and whatever. Oh, one of the men is like, oh, I see the young, good-looking pastor gets more rice than I get, you know. And and Isak is like, oh, have you eaten, brother? Do you need, do you need, here, you can have some of my rice. And like genuinely. And the other man is like, oh, no, no, it's fine. But he, but then like he looks to. The other man is like, no, 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 I, I had three healthy. <laughs> well, but no, but then he, but then he looks to Sanja, who's still there serving and he's like, but I mean, I might want some more rice. I might have another serving of rice. And um, the brothers all laugh. One of the brothers is like, oh, leave food for the women. Ha ha. And Isak stops. He hadn't thought of that. And he thinks or he says, do the women have enough food? Yeah. And Sanja is, of course, like, oh, no, we have eaten. Like, we're fine. There's enough food. And being sweet. And anyway, I, Isaac had genuinely been like, is there enough food for the women? I won't. And then, of course, the other man who was joking and being like, oh, maybe I need more rice. And he would have taken more rice. He sees Isaac be like, do the women have food? And you can tell he kind of like. He's like, oh. He's like, he's like, oh, no, I don't need rice. Never mind. I'm just going to smoke my cigar or whatever. And so, like, there are little moments like that where you do see the true Isaac. And he's just. Yeah. He's a good character. Yeah. He's a good person. It's, um, that, I, the, the, yeah, I was just frustrated yeah. by the whole, like, really, your the, first thought is, yeah. He's oh, no. Or that you need to say. I know. I know. And even the, even the pastor. So when they do go back to that church, uh, for Sanja and Isak to get married, it's only Youngjin and Sanja and Isak at the, like, little ceremony or whatever. The two, the two women have never even been in a church and they're like kind of, they're kind of awed by it, you know, because it's so different and they're just so, I mean, they're so thankful for the situation that someone wants Sanja and the pastor, before he even does like the marriage ceremony, he basically starts questioning Sanja. He starts, and, and Isak is over here feeling. He's like, crap, I should never have brought her. Yeah. This is not. Because. It's like the pastor changes because the pastor was talking in, in one way with Isak and with the other, like, maybe parishioners that they have seen. But then Sanja comes in and he starts grilling her and starts asking her, like, do you know who the father is? Like, Maury. And you are that father. <laughs> and, like, you know, do you know where the father is and blah, blah, blah. And Young Jin is trying to help kind of just be like, no, she doesn't know. We're sorry, you know. And Isak is over here like, lay off, bro. But it's very apparent the pastor is has no interest in her well-being. No. He only cares about Isak. And his whole thing is, are you capable of providing for this man? Are you capable of being, uh, fulfilling your wifely duties? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, she, and she's in tears and she's like, uh yes, I mean I'm I'll I am here to do whatever. This little this little sixteen year old girl, 
He was terrified, pregnant, heartbroken. She's being blamed for her situation. Exactly. And she's having to reassure this man, this pastor that she doesn't even know that, oh, yes, I'll, I'll be a good wife. You know, it is very heartbreaking. Do you understand the the sacrifice this man is yeah. making for you? Yeah, they, yeah. and Isak is over here like, oh, my gosh. Will you attend him and your repayment for his sacrifice? Like, Yeah. So, you know, whatever. You know, they, they got through that, and the ceremony itself was just, I think, like a couple minutes, and they were married, and it wasn't like... Yeah, and then and uh, Yunjin was she's like oh, I didn't realize the ceremony would take place now, and she immediately goes out and goes to a vendor to try and buy some white rice, which is expensive. Which is expensive because she wants to make them rice cakes, and the vendor gives her a hard time because he's like I don't want to sell her my rice, like I don't have much rice, and so she has to tell him my daughter's getting married. And I want—I just want to make them some rice cakes. And his response is, oh, my gosh, I haven't had a rice cake in forever. You're going to save me a piece, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it sucks. And so she gets the rice and she makes them cakes. Yeah, so, so that the bride and groom can have something. Like she said, I want them to have the taste of white rice on their, like, first day together before they leave. Because the thing is, she's going to be marrying Isak. Sanja's going to be marrying Isak, and they're going to be leaving, and they're going to be going to Osaka. So Sanja's life is going to be changing completely. And Youngjin even thinks, I likely won't see my daughter again. And before they leave, she even is telling Sanja, I mean, all the expected stuff, be a good wife, give to your husband, or he'll go to some other woman. Like, she's just yeah. telling things that she knows she's to try. trying to think of everything yeah. she could possibly tell her in a moment. Yeah. Because she doesn't know if she'll ever see her again. Yeah. And she even tells her, she's like, as a mother, I have no right to see you again. Like, it's just crazy how that is just so accepted that the daughter moves on. And, I mean, there were so many who never saw their mothers again. And, like, the connection between a mother and daughter in that time could be so strong. And so for that to be, for that to be severed just like that, you know, that's such a brave thing to do, to allow your life to be changed so wholly and completely. Yes. And then, before leaving, Youngjin sees the watch that Sanja has. And she's like, where did you get this? Who gave this to you? And she tells her it's from him. And Youngjin is like, uh, you, I didn't know that he gave you. She, she. Like, what, where did he get this? She was like. Steal it? How did he get such a wealthy gift? Yeah, she was like, what man has a watch like that? And so she, she tells her that it came from him. And then. Her mother is, where is he? Do you know where he is? Sanja tells her he lives in Osaka. And her mother's like, are you crazy? You're moving to Osaka. Yeah, see, the young Jin was like, you're not going to go back to him, right? And Sanja's like, no. Yeah. So. So. (laughs) Isak and Sanja move to Osaka. 
and uh, Sanja is introduced to Yoseb. Kyungi? Which uh, Yoseb is Isak's brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kyungi is his wife. So they go to live with them. And it it's interesting because Sanja arrives and realizes I actually had it pretty good in Korea in my mother's boarding house because our boarding house was tiny, but it's bigger than this house. And it was clean. It was clean. This house is not. And the difference in this situation is they tell her, oh, we own this house. This is ours. And um, but we cannot let people know that we own it because the area that they apparently live in, everyone is poor. Everyone is judgmental. Everyone is a thief. And if they know that you own something, they will judge you and they will look down on you and they will come over and they will want to ask for things. They will want to steal from you. And so she realizes, oh, this is an interesting situation because I'm in a place that's even smaller and there's four of us. And yeah, it's a. And then she realizes, man, I, I did have it pretty good and I didn't even realize how good. Yeah, it's a really sad area. The the houses themselves are more, I mean, it says like they're not even better than tents or yeah. things like that, like shacks. The walls are really thin and um, really just barely propped up. It's just not a safe feeling place. Yeah. And the thing is, like during the day, the men have to go to work and the women have to stay in this house, in this area that's not great. Thankfully, Sanja is now making a connection with now her sister-in-law, Kyungi, who is really sweet. And the moment she meets Sanja, because it's like there's this, there's a little bit of tension in the beginning because Yosef meets them, meets them at the like train station, right? And the whole time he's nervous because he's the elder brother and he knows his brother Isaac has had such a hard life because he grew up ill and he grew up just having a hard time. And no one ever thought he would live past 25. No one ever thought that he would get married. And now he's showing up with a woman. They they know the situation. They know that Sanja was already pregnant and that Isaac um, took that on to be able to give her his name and to give the baby his name. And so for Yosef, He's a little more jaded with life, and he's like, I don't know what kind of woman this is going to be, you know? Um, so he's a little bit standoffish in the beginning. But whenever he takes them to their house and they meet Kyungi, the moment she meets Sanja, she's like, oh, my goodness, here, come in. Let us feed you. Are you okay? And she sees that Sanja's miserable because she's pregnant and she just traveled however far, and she's tired, and Kyungi takes her in full arms you know and just um accepts her immediately so thankfully she has that connection and it's interesting to see the women's views of each other because kyungi looks to to many people like she's japanese she dresses a certain way she carries herself a certain way people respect her and then when they find out she's korean they're still cordial to her they're still nice to her and sanja looks at herself and esteems Kyungi like much higher than her. Oh yes. And she um and she doesn't feel that she is on the same level at all. <laughs> Kyungi, on the other hand, looks at Sanja and and gets to know her and sees 
that she's smart. She knows numbers. She is resourceful and she has like, she's like street smart. Mm -hmm. Like she has, like, she's very savvy and she's able to make decisions and she's able to make things work and she's able to take very little and make much out of what she has. And so it's interesting to see both of their perspectives yeah. in that way. So they are in Osaka and the men are out and the women are at home and someone shows up to their house. It is the debt collector or collectors. There's two of them. They show up and they begin to tell the women that Yosef, uh, they tell them of his debts and that they owe money. Right. right now and we need to get this because he hasn't paid in two months and the interest has gone up mm -hmm. and it's what he owes now is probably triple to what he originally started with yeah and they're saying all these things and the, you know they're telling this to Kyungi and she's like oh my goodness she had she had no clue she doesn't really know what to say and Sunja steps in and she's like so the total sum would be this much and they're the men are kind of one of them's like uh yeah, like they're kind of taken aback. They're not used to women like being that straightforward when it comes to like money. Yeah. Sanja basically is like, can you come back at this time? Yeah. Can you give us this this much time? And the men are like, yeah, we'll sure. we'll we'll be here. Better you better it. have that money. I don't know how you're going to make it happen. So they get them to go away. And Sanja kind of takes over where Kyungi doesn't know how. Whereas when they go to the markets together and stuff, like Kyungi knows how to speak Japanese. And so Sanja just kind of stands to the side. But in this situation, it like it reverses. And Sanja is like, I know what we can do. She has the gold watch. Yeah. So they take the watch to a pawn shop. Sanja basically makes a deal for this watch with the shopkeeper. And the shopkeeper is... He's a little, like, put off that he has to deal with a woman, and he's a little, like, frustrated that she won't settle for what he wants to get. Yeah, she won't back down. She, she, like, haggles with him, and she ends up selling, he ends up buying the watch. And it's funny because in the moment, the shopkeeper has, is it his son that's there? I don't remember. There's someone, uh, maybe not, maybe I'm thinking of a different, but... But I feel like there's someone there in the moment who takes her side and he's like, oh, come on, let her like pay her. Oh, yeah. Because, like, yeah. Give her 200. That's what she That's true. Because they see that she's pregnant and like that she's standing firm. Yeah. And yeah, the other guy was like, oh, come on, give the little mother like whatever. Yeah. So thankfully she stands her ground and they go to a Korean pawnbroker. So it's someone that she can actually speak. Yeah. Speak with. And she knows that if she were to go to a Japanese pawnbroker, they would like pay more for the watch because like they know they could sell it. Yeah. And the thing is, though, as a Korean woman, if she were to go to a Japanese pawnbroker, they maybe would buy the watch, but then they would probably call the police and report her. her because they're like, there's no way you have this. Watch. Yeah, they would. Stole. They would immediately assume that she stole it and it would be a big deal. And so she she knows and because she knows some of this based on what Hansu would tell her. Yeah. Because Hansu would come back from his different travels and he would tell her things. And so he has told her before that, like, in Osaka, the police are very much involved with everything, especially when it comes to Koreans and not in a good way. And so she knows we're going to go to this Korean pawnbroker. I'm going to take care of it and I'm going to stand firm. And she does. And she gets what she, like, asks for. 
for the watch. They're able, and of course, Kyungi's watching this the whole time, like impressed. She's like, she's like, wow, I've never seen my sister-in-law. The little bit that I've known her, I've not seen her be so like calm and collected and confident. But this is where sun just shines and they're able to get the money and the men come back to the house at a certain time, take them to like the boss or whatever to pay the money. And Sanja has it, and they're like, we have no idea how you got this, but, you know. But thanks, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll sure take it. And so that's how the debt is paid off, because Sanja, Sanja tells Kyungi beforehand, we need to pay this right now, because the way, like, my father told me about these types of loans. Don't let these build up, because it, they'll, it'll just grow and grow. So, like, Huni taught her a lot, and she uses that knowledge to help to help her new family and Kyungi is like oh my goodness like I'm so glad I had you and whatever and when later that day when Yoseb gets home from work he works at, he's like the foreman at a factory or whatever yeah. he gets home and they tell him what happens and tell him what they did because they're proud like we paid this off for you or whatever he gets upset oh he's livid yeah yeah he he starts like yelling at them and it's crazy because like he hadn't shown that side of him before really and he gets upset because he's like i don't need women over here paying my debts like now they're gonna look at me and think that i have all my women do my work for me and and he's upset that his wife was in a pawn shop yeah and he's upset that sanja took her there sanja took her and he starts he starts saying things about Sanja. He's like, what type of woman goes to a pawn shop and, and where like where did you even have anything to like pawn? Like what did you steal this? Like he starts accusing her of things and Sanja starts crying and Kyungi's over here trying to defend her, like we took care of the debt or whatever. And in the midst of that, Sanja starts feeling pain. Cause remember she's pregnant. But this, at the situation is so, like, loud at the moment, and she's so unexper- inexperienced that she doesn't realize that she is starting to go into labor. And so she's just there against the wall, kind of crying, holding her stomach. Kyungi is trying to convince Yoseb to listen, that it was a good thing that they helped. Yoseb is saying hurtful things. He finally storms out and leaves. And... They fall together crying, I think, and it's before too long Isak gets home, Isak, and he's like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Because they're both crying together, and they tell him the situation, and he's like, well, of course, like, that is so good that you helped. Like, he had no idea until then that Yosef was in debt, Yeah. and based on the time period of when Yosef borrowed the money, they pieced together that Yosef borrowed the money so that he could pay for his brother's transport to Osaka. And so the whole reason Yosef was even in debt was so he could help Isak and his new wife come to Osaka. And that had never occurred to, like, immature Isak over here. He just thought that, I guess, he had the money to help him do that, which, I mean, I'm sure was very expensive. So he very much is just showing his immaturity a lot. And he tells the women, no, that's good that you helped. You know, he he definitely has no condemnation toward them and is thankful that they could help. 
And then they all realize that Sanja's having the baby because her water breaks, <laughs> her water breaks, and she starts really crying out. And it it's really it's really sad because you know she wants her mom. And um, anyway, they go get the midwife. They don't speak much in the book on it, but the midwife is like, "Oh, it was an easy," you know. Yeah. In her in her experience, it was a very easy birth, and uh, that was that. Sanja had a baby. And had a little boy. Isaac takes the baby. And I mean, he's viewing this baby as his own, you know. And he is like filled with this wonder of now they have a baby. Yosef finally comes home like the next morning. He was drinking the night away, you know. And then you get a glimpse once Yosef comes back. He still has the anger. He still has the pride. He's a very prideful person. And to him, it feels like the women shouldn't have dealt with that. But, you know, he he kind of shows a little bit of some vulnerability in the fact that he just feels like all of this responsibility is on him. Not only does he have to take care of his sickly younger brother, who he's always tried to look out for, he has to take care of his own wife, and now he has to make sure that his younger brother's wife is taken care of, and now there's a baby. He comes home and there's a baby, and he's just like, you know that he's overwhelmed, and that's why he has so much just volatility there. But yeah, like he comes home to a baby being born. Isak is like, look, you know, Sanja had a boy. And as the elder brother present, I want you to name our son. And so Yosef names the child Noah. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's part one. Yeah. It's a lot too. We talked, we talked for a long time. It's it's amazing how moving of a story it is, even though there's nothing super phenomenal happening. Like they're just it's a life story of people in extreme conditions making crazy difficult decisions, trying to do the best thing for themselves and for each other. And it's just so rich. It's so rich in imagery and it's so moving in emotion and it's just such a good book. And we haven't even got to like <laughs> the the Pachinko part. Right. So Right. The whole reason it's called Pachinko. So, We're not even halfway through. Not even halfway through. And so um this is a pretty big like dive for us to go this yeah. detail. But I think it's good. I think it's important. And I I want people to know about this story. I want mm-hmm. people to know about this author. Yeah. I have been nervous to talk about this book. I've wanted to for a while, but it spans over so much time and so much happens, I mean, culturally and just personally for the characters. And I've been nervous to talk about it because it is so much and I want to do it justice. Yeah, for sure. I want to do it justice because it is such a good story. Uh, so, you know, guys, let us know if you like us talking about books more in depth like this yeah we've been thinking it would be really cool to just make it more conversational uh so that really hopefully anyone can join in if you've read the book or not yeah and if you want to read the book or not um you know because we just love stories we love highlighting especially the ones that just touch us in all kinds of different ways and you know let us know what you think about us doing kind of longer, kind of conversational, in-depth discussions 
we think it'll be really fun. We hope you guys enjoy it. And hopefully you enjoy having like some of the bigger books put into parts and kind of delving into the characters and stories. And, you know, we're, we're excited. I think it's going well. But yeah, we're just excited to really be able to give stories and the storytelling the attention that it deserves. Yeah, um, because that's that matters to us, and um, we know there's people out there too that it matters to them. Yeah, and yeah, we want to give those people a place where they can actually appreciate good storytelling with us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is something that we will kind of turn into a little series. So this is part one mm-hmm. of Pachinko. We will be having a part two coming out soon. It's funny too, because we started off and we just dove right in. We didn't even talk about coffee. <laughs> and uh, and that's okay. That's probably another episode. That's probably a done episode and that's yeah. totally fine. Yeah. One thing we are going to do is you can actually, if you want to see more, uh, more in detail about books or more in detail about coffee or different things like that, you can actually go and check out our new blog on our Pages and Pores website. Yeah. So where yeah. can they find that, Hogan? Well, we have it linked right now on our Instagram. If you want to go to pagesandpores.studio, uh, right now it's just set up as a blog format, but I actually will be having the full website up soon. At the moment, you can either find the link out on our Instagram or if you want to go to pagesandpores.wordpress.com. That's where the blog is. But it's not going to be that forever. Um, it will eventually be just a full, nice domain. But yeah, we're we're excited because we're just rethinking some things this season on kind of how we want to talk about books and authors, how we want to talk about coffee, and the type of things we want to offer. So I think the blog will be a cool aspect of that too because a lot of the different things like tips or suggestions or... Like, things we've experienced and found. Yeah, it's like we'll we'll share some of that on the blog too, and we'll share, like we'll share some of our favorite things that we can link to for you guys, like coffee equipment or cleaning equipment or just yeah, and things to make your life easier. Just sharing experience. Better. Yeah, just sharing our favorite stuff. And anyway, we have really fun stuff coming. The next episode of Pachinko will be out soon. soon. As I'm sure you can see on the time of this episode, it's a lot to talk through. So we'll separate it up for you guys and and hopefully you're enjoying it. Please let us know what you think about the full conversations like this. If you're enjoying it, if you like the more um, in-depth style that we're doing, this is kind of our trying it out. You know, we're trying this out with Pachinko. And if it's something that is too much, let us know. And if it's something you really enjoy because it maybe feels like a way to immerse into the story, let us know that too. We're kind of just trying out new things and we appreciate you guys listening along as we try out things. Uh, we just appreciate you listening at all. And we just care. appreciate you. Yeah. I appreciate you in general. Yeah. So thanks for, you know, hanging out with us and taking the time to listen to our stories. Yeah, thank you. Even though they're not our stories, they're other people's stories. Our favorite stories. Yes, our favorite stories. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time, I'm Ben the Barista. And I'm Hogan the Bookworm. Cheers and happy reading. 